the FT. Hello, and welcome back to FT Science. This week, we'll be finding out how to project people through virtual reality into the bodies of avatars. When a painful stimulus is applied to my body during that illusion, I support more pain, meaning thresholds or pain stimuli applied during the illusion to the, to the body are much better supported. And we'll be hearing from the woman responsible for spending a billion pounds a year on research in Britain's National Health Service. We are going to develop a strand of particular work on uh, translational medicine, as well as continuing to develop the collaborations and the contract work with the life sciences industry. We believe Britain can play a major role there as the biopharma model changes. I'm Clive Cookson, and you're listening to FT Science. Both our regulars are here with me, Diana Garnham, Chief Executive of the Science Council, and my colleague Andrew Jack, FT Pharmaceuticals Correspondent. Hello, Diana. Good morning. And hello, Andrew. Hello. So let's start this week with Dame Sally Davies, Head of Research and Development in the NHS. She's just made a series of announcements about future plans for her National Institute for Health Research. I asked her to explain what the announcements were all about we've announced four things. One, a research breakthrough, which is a new blood pressure device, and that is a way to improve the outcomes for patients and prevent stroke. We also announced that we, the NIHR, are funding an international register of systematic reviews that will help practitioners and managers the world over be able to easily access what's there and know whether it's up to date and what needs doing. We continue to add to our suite of collaborative agreements with industry and the NHS so that we can do work together by um, promoting and publishing a new model industry collaborative agreement which sets the heads of agreement between the NHS, life science industries and the medical schools and universities to make it easy and quick to start collaborative work. And we also announce the... NIHR School for Public Health Research, which is going to spend £5 million a year increasing the evidence base for public health delivery, that is interventions to improve public health, and I help also bringing back together the academics in public health with the service providers of public health. You've obviously done a lot over the last four years, both to increase funding of R&D in the health service and to make things easier. Yet there are still big obstacles. We had that report from the Academy of Medical Sciences earlier this year, which was really quite critical of the time and bureaucracy involved. How can we square that with the improvements you're bringing about? Well, we asked the Academy to do this report because we have made great strides with collaborative agreements, um, a national research ethics system to improve the bureaucracy. But it isn't where I want it, and we hear complaints from industry. And so we asked the Academy to review what the issues are and make proposals. They've come up with the idea of a single health research regulator. The government has welcomed the proposals and we are looking at how we can make this best work. But I do want to say we have, in the four years NIHR has been in place, transformed the health research environment and the quantity and quality of health research in this country. So, you know, reducing bureaucracy could be seen as icing on the cake. What's your agenda then for the next two or three years? You've got in the public spending review 
um, modest increase in funding. But what else do you expect and hope to achieve? Well, we got a great settlement um, for our funding going forward, a steady rise in funding to develop translational medicine. So we're going to, as we always said, we would rerun the competition for our biomedical research centres and units. We are going to develop a strand of particular work on uh, translational medicine, as well as continuing to develop the collaborations and the contract work with the life sciences industry. We believe Britain can play a major role there as the biopharma model changes. And so watch this space. We're going to really make it work even better. Diana, what do you think? Has she transformed the environment for health research in this country, as she says? I think she's made an enormous impact in developing the glue between the sectors so that they work more effectively together. And I think that has actually created a much more... Um, innovative climate and she's always been very outspoken about the need to invest in translational research so I think that's kept it very much on the agenda for this sector. I like the vision though of the UK really getting this right. Andrew is that vision achievable? I think it's pretty tough I mean I think clearly there have been efforts and it's very important that there's government and public sector and NHS driven research alongside the drug companies or others who've obviously got a very particular product let's say to push but if she thinks you know bureaucracy is simply as it were an icing on the cake issue I mean I'm I think the the underlying lumps in the mix as it were are pretty fundamental and they go much broader I mean I was just at the parliamentary select committee yesterday talking about the the closure of the sandwich facility for Pfizer and the big issue is the NHS one that there really aren't research incentives to get high-level clinicians to do systematic research and to a pretty poor uptake of innovative medicines and other products, which also is, alas, despite all the efforts of Sally and others, continuing to lead to a decline in the UK's role, whether for clinical trials or for earlier stage research. And also, although from outside the UK, the National Health Service looks like a big centralised organisation, you can't in fact ignore local opinion and the Academy of Medical Sciences whose report we talked about on FT Science earlier this year and which Sally mentioned they wanted a centralised procedure where every clinical trial would be approved centrally and then the local authorities, the foundation trusts as they will be, would have to agree but that's not the way it works I don't think you can override local considerations in that way I think it will be very difficult, but there are certainly people locally who will try and match the sorts of decisions that are being made locally to some sort of national benchmark. So I think you can get there. I think it is important to standardise some of that thinking because the uncertainty for academics puts them off engaging in research, and particularly international research, as I understand it, when it's already been approved elsewhere and the UK is waiting to have a section of a trial, a line of the trial. But part of it, you were saying, Andrew, is that the health service will actually have to be prepared to spend more on innovative medicines. Spend more, but also really provide incentives. You know, I mean, at the moment, GPs, hospital uh, clinicians alike and so on, despite all the great rhetoric, there really is much less incentive than, for example, in the US, where you hear, you know, companies saying that these biomedical clusters have not only a rapid turnover of people who work in academic and in private sector organisations, but also clinicians who are just passionate about research 
question about publishing, and there's really very, very little credit for that within the NHS at the moment. So at the moment where there have been breakthroughs, for example, the so-called Northwest Exemplar for clinical research, which has done quite a lot to accelerate clinical trial recruitment, it's really been down to individuals who just have that passion themselves and have driven it through, albeit with a background where, to some degree, I think giving a green light, giving some reassurance about centralised processes of approval can at least ease some of the bureaucracy if the NHS locally is willing to, to push ahead with research. Yes, well, I'm sure we'll be returning to health research on FT Science in the course of the year. But now, on my recent visit to Washington for the American Association for the Advancement of Science annual meeting, one of the most fascinating presentations came from a group in Switzerland who are using virtual reality to project volunteers into the body of an avatar or a virtual human being. I asked the project leader, Professor Olaf Blanke of the École Polytechnique Fédérale de Lausanne, to tell us what he's been up to. We started uh, this research project based on observations in patients where these changes don't occur experimentally, but they report them to their physician. But they have normally not been taken very seriously and linked to parapsychology, for example. But if you talk to these patients very precisely, they tell you a very similar thing, that their self needs to be dislocalized under the ceiling, looking down, there's a change in the first-person perspective, and they identify with this incorrect position. This is what we call out-of-body experience. Exactly, that's an out-of-body experience. So what we've tried based on these data is to see whether we can achieve similar conscious experiences in you and me in the research lab. And so what we have achieved so far is that the illusions are not that strong, not yet, but that these two aspects that are distorted in the out-of-body experience, self-location, where I'm, is my center of consciousness awareness localized in space, and what do I identify with, where are these, or we can manipulate where healthy subject experience to be. So how do you create these feelings? So we use something called visual tactile conflicts. So normally if I look at my hand and I would touch my, my left hand with my right hand, I perceive, and if I look at my hand, I see the touch at the same location where I feel the touch. Now this is a constant throughout our lives. Stimuli that apply to our body surface, and if I would look at it, I see them at the same time at the same space. Now what we do is we ambiguate them, we enter a conflict. So you would see a touch, but you would not feel it at the corresponding position, or you would see it at a distant position. And what we do is we expose the brain of our healthy participants for prolonged periods of such stimulation, where we have taken many efforts to use virtual reality to do this in a very robust way so that you can really have a realistic setting that you see your body from a distance and each time you feed a touch you would see it at this distant body and how the brain how does it react in those situations well it starts identifying with that avatar's body or with the filmed body and it also mislocalizes itself it starts to localize the center of conscious awareness not where it should but as shifted towards the avatar's position if i'm then in that position, occupying the avatar's body, how differently do I feel if you give me, for example, a painful sensation in the avatar? Is that different from if I'm in my own body? So that's very important that you mention it because our initial experiments were based on questionnaires and not many repeated measures, but we have seen two other significant changes. One is when we have this illusion, we perceive touch stimuli applied to our body differently And even more strikingly, in my opinion, when a painful stimulus is applied to my body during that illusion, 
I support more pain, meaning thresholds or pain stimuli applied during the illusion to the, to the body are much better supported. And that could be of practical interest. Pain is notoriously known to be highly subjective and it responds, of course, very well to a large range of pharmacological treatments, but there's, in many patients, persisting pain. And there's really, it's, it's, it's a medical problem to treat these patients. So our technology could be an easy add-on technology which doesn't need uh, a drug intake, but it could be an additional kind of new form of, of cognitive pain therapy, if you want. But I get the impression that perhaps you're even more interested intellectually in what is a sense of self, even more interested than you are in the practical applications. Am I right? Yes, so this is our basic research question. So trying to experimentally work and understand the self and self-consciousness, so the subject of experience, and how this relates to which brain mechanism does it relate. And what our research has shown so far, that not as previously thought language, memory, Cognition or thought are very important. It seems to be more fundamentally and more minimally, if you want also, how the body is represented by the brain. Sadly, there wasn't time for me to have a go, though I spoke to one of the volunteers who'd come over and he said it really felt unbelievable, the strangeness of occupying another body, even with this rather primitive technology, and no doubt it's going to be improved in the future. I don't know, Diana, Andrew, whether you fancy doing it. I'm not sure. The out-of-body experience, I mean, I can imagine some of those things, but I can't see the value of doing that. I would need some persuading. Well, Olaf mentioned one practical value, which is if you had some severe intractable pain, if somehow you could be taken out of your body and the pain removed and put back into your body. This sort of thing can help, I believe that. And also for people who've had limbs amputated and they have phantom limb pain, there's possible applications there. Obviously, it's a minority interest, but who knows where it will lead. Andrew, would you like to be taken out of your body? I'm certainly willing to try it, as long as I can be guaranteed to return afterwards to the original one. No, I I, I I agree with Diana. I'm a little bit, you know, it sounds to me interesting experimental psychology. I'm not quite sure, you know, how close or real it would be to actual practical application. Maybe there is some way you remove certain inhibitions as well, and that could be an interesting thought experiment. But, you know, would it simulate what real life could be or would be, I suppose, and therefore how far can you translate it from the avatar to the human? There's obviously a huge number of applications in the entertainment industry. Films where we feel the pain. And then it can be combined with holograms. It'll be fantastic. Holographic pain feelings. Anyway, that's all we have time for today on FT Science. Please join us again next week when the great Australian environmentalist Tim Flannery will be here in the studio. All that's left for me is to thank my companions Diana Garnham and Andrew Jack and thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.